I'm Catherine Yupomnishi. I'm the director of the Harriman Institute, and it really is a pleasure. We always have to say this. We always say it's a pleasure. I'm delighted, whatever. But I really am it's <laughs> delighted to invite you here today to what I think is one of the most momentous occasions um, I can remember um, during my very, very long time involved at the Harriman Institute. Um, and I will say, not to embarrass him, but the mastermind behind the entire Havel events is hiding himself in the back row <laughs> of the audience. But I would like to um, express my own thanks, and I think our collective thanks to Gregory Mosher for all of, that he has done to make all of these things happen on campus. Um, so I'm going to just um, let things go, except for one thing. Um, in your programs, you will find an insert. Um, and it is a none too subtle request um, for support for the Czech Studies program at Columbia. Um, one thing we want to all remember here is that we can put together a program like today's program, partially by bringing people from outside, but partially also, or, or largely, because of the long history and excellent current staff um, who teach Czech studies at this university. And we want to be able to guarantee that this program can continue and flourish in the future. And we are happy to accept donations of any size um, and to help that project and pass it on to your friends who aren't here yet. I'll be, probably repeat, repeat this announcement in the afternoon. But I also want to say thanks to the two people, one of whom is sitting on my left, who are all really responsible for putting together this wonderful symposium. And sitting to my left is Christopher Harwood, who is the anchor of the Czech Language and Literature Program at Columbia. And sitting someplace out there in the audience or running around doing something, ah, sitting right there in the front row, is Bradley Abrams, our Eastern European historian. And they take the full credit for putting this all together. So now I'm going to let the good times roll and um, enjoy. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Okay. Uh, I want to keep this quick because I want to get straight to the really important part. Uh, I want to add uh, my thanks to Kathy's for all of you who have come. Uh, and also to Gregory Moser and the University Arts Initiative for bringing Václav Havel to Columbia University, which has done obviously an awful lot, I think, to, uh, to draw attention to what we try and do here. Um, uh, I also want to remind you that although uh, I think today probably constitutes for me the climax of what we're doing here at Harriman Institute and in Czech Studies with, uh, in connection with the Havel visit is not the end. Uh, we've got uh, other uh, really interesting events coming up. Uh, uh, this Tuesday at 6.30, we've got uh, uh, a very special double lecture and discussion on the uh, Machine Brothers resistance movement in the early 1950s, uh, the, the Czechs who fought their way out of uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, and we'll have a fascinating talk and, and discussion about those events, and that's going to be uh, 6.30 this Tuesday in 1219 International Affairs Building, just three floors down from here. Uh, also, uh, Harriman Institute is, is uh, sponsoring the production of the Beggar's Opera, uh, uh, which is the sort of the culmination of the uh, Havel Theater Festival. Uh, maybe uh, Amy Trumpeter is here, who could just show herself, the director of uh, the production of 
Beggar's Opera, which is, is going to be fantastic. Uh, uh, so that's coming up at the Miller Theater, December 1st and 2nd. Uh, and also uh, on Thursday, December 7th at 6 p.m. in the Harrison Room of Faculty House, which is not far from here, uh, uh, we'll have Yuji Dienstbier, um, the, uh, a leading figure from uh, Dissident Movement and Charter 77, and of course the first foreign minister uh, of Czechoslovakia after the fall of communism. So we're very pleased to have uh, Mr. Dienstbier join us for a talk on democracy 17 years after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Uh, so, uh, just really quickly, I'd like to extend uh, my thanks to the people who, in my view, made this possible. Uh, uh, as I said, uh, uh, Greg Mosher and, and uh, Arts Initiative for bringing Howell here, and uh, the Harriman Institute and Catherine Napomnyshi, who is, uh, have really stepped up in recognizing uh, uh, Czech studies and giving us every possibility to do everything <laughs> we wanted to do uh, in connection with, with these events and a little bit more. Uh, so, so uh, big thanks to them, uh, and we're hoping that the, the excitement this will generate will draw more of you in uh, to supporting what we do. Uh, and finally, uh, I want to, of course, thank our participants, who, uh, uh, as most of you know, are some of the, the, the best qualified and most fascinating people that we, <laughs> we really could have come up with to say anything about Havel. Uh, everyone who's going to be speaking here knows things about Havel that probably no one else in the world does or, or, or knows so well. Uh, so we're really, we're really honored, and uh, I think uh, 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 we're very lucky to have them, but I think uh, all of them have expressed to me their, their pleasure at being here, and I think it's uh, uh, partly in, uh, to honor Havel, who is, who is uh, here in New York with us, but I think it's also because they were all so excited about getting to see each other. So I'm hoping uh, that uh, a, a big part of uh, uh, this program is going to be listening to what, what uh, our participants have to, to say and ask each other. So just a, an overview of the format today, uh, so you know what to expect. We are running nearly uh, a half an hour late, so we'll have to try and make up. Uh, we'll have a morning session on uh, Havel's uh, Literature and Theater, which will go till uh, 12.30 or a bit later. Uh, we'll have a break for lunch. We will resume at 2 o'clock, or as close to 2 o'clock as we possibly can, for an afternoon panel on Havel's political thought and activity. Uh, and we'll try and finish that as close to 4.30 as we can. And everyone is invited to join us for a reception afterwards. Uh, so, uh, and just as far as the format of this morning panel, I've invited each of our participants to uh, give a presentation that will go about 20 minutes. We'll try and keep them as close to that as they possibly can. Uh, and uh, after that, we'll, we'll, we'll have discussion. As I say, hopefully, uh, I, I want to give each panelist a chance to ask their, their co-panelist something and then open up uh, to the floor for, for questions from you. So our first uh, uh, presentation is going to be from Marketa Getstankiewicz, who is Professor Emerita uh, from the Department of Central, Eastern, and Northern European Studies at the University of British Columbia. Uh, she is the foremost expert in the English language on the dramatic work of Václav Havel and really of uh, uh, Czech theater, modern Czech theater. Uh, the uh, author of The Silence Theater, Czech Playwrights Without a Stage, co-editor of uh, the really uh, terrific volume of critical essays on Václav Havel, and also editor of a book, uh, Goodbye Samizdat, which is a great anthology of, uh, of writings from various genres that came out in Samizdat in Czechoslovakia. So without further ado, uh, please welcome Marketa Getstankiewicz.
guess I need it lower. Is that all right on the, on the sound? Shall I put it a bit further? Or would you rather have it without? With? Um, good morning. Uh, I, I will start with uh, not with a customary joke, as many people do, but uh, with a little um, dialogue, very short. Uh, a dialogue between A and B. Um, a asks B, uh, so uh, dear B, what or who is Václav Havel? Uh, and B says, well, my dear A, that's a very difficult question because everyone has his own Havel. So um, following B, I'm going to say a few words about me, mine, or our own Havel, uh, and that is the Havel that wrote for our times, I could say for the 21st century, without stretching a point really, maybe just a little. I'll come down here so that I can see what I have drafted here. Um, let's see. Um, Tom Stoppard uh, said not long ago, namely for the 70th birthday of Havel, he said, Havel is uh, for our time, his plays stand up. So that, um, did that go off? No. Sorry, I'm not used to these uh, monsters or let's say, uh, sorry about the technology. Um, the, uh, um, there are a few voices, quite eminent voices, who don't uh, agree with that, who see Havel differently. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, um, uh, Timothy Garton Ash, uh, venerable voice, said that um, Havel, um, Havel's essays and uh, speeches will be read long after temptation is forgotten. Well, they will be read, but so will temptation will be put on. Uh, and then there is Professor of Theatre Sklut, who says um, Havel was deeply, is a political writer, and was deeply ideological at whatever he wrote. Well, Havel did not, did reject it ideology that does not, um, that does not uh, uh, look at its own assumptions. Well, then there is um, uh, a person like uh, Michael Ignatieff, a scholar and publicist about whom uh, 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 Paul Wilson has written and others, and who is now running for better or for worse for Canadian politics. And he says, um, he says, the myth of Havel, his, his voice is fading and with it the myth that he has established. Well, these are quite eminent voices, but I, um, for one, as a small fish on the stage, um, will, does not agree with that because uh, Havel has much more to say to us and those in the audience, which I'm very happy to have met today, who are putting on um, and uh, uh, directing Havel's plays, will agree with me how topical he actually is. Um, the, um, what, I, uh, what I have tried to, uh, to do is um, look at three topics 
uh, in Havel's plays, very, very briefly, <laughs> topics which don't seem at all um, theatrical or histrionic. They um, must move away from this. Uh, they uh, uh, are responsibility, identity, and language. Now you will say responsibility and identity, there is nothing theatrical about that. Well, there is, Havel makes it so. And language, of course, is an umbrella term which covers the other two. So let's look at responsibility first, very briefly. Um, the uh, responsibility is used for schools or homes. When do you, you just watch yourself, yourself when you use the word politics sometimes in a strange way, and that's what Havel did for us. He shows us uh, how the term, which is a weighty ethical term, how the term is used um, before he uses it himself as a, as a weighty uh, moral and ethical term. He gives us characters in his plays quite early on who throw around like a football or a baseball or whatever um, the word responsibility in, and he parodies them. Uh, for example, the uh, uh, Balash from the, the memo says, um, as a, he's a deputy and he says, um, on me lies the weight of responsibility that's connected with my position as director. Well, he's just played a dirty trick on somebody else, but the word responsibility weighs and gets loud laughter in, in, uh, if performed now in the Czech Republic. It is used as a parody. And later on, uh, somewhat later, in the, um, uh, the um, Largo Desolato, the uh, uh, rather hapless uh, hero or protagonist there, who swallows pills, looks at the door, tries to, uh, tries to keep his uh, life uh, somehow, and, and his women somehow in some balance, and he uh, allegedly, as we hear in the play, has, been, has written the phenomenology of responsibility, which also gets a laugh from the audience when you see this guy trotting around the stage, you know, and since he's dressing gown and, uh, and uh, rattling with, with, with excitement and un unsureness. So uh, what is so interesting about here is, uh, about this is that um, Havel uses parodies the term before he uses it as one of the weightiest um, ideas in his own writings. And this is, I think, a, a, unique, uh, a unique occurrence. If we look at um, the um, uh, theme of identity, we come, of course, much closer to the stage, to the theater. Uh, because uh, you have identity, people wear masks and we don't know who they are, Shakespeare is full of it, and uh, we figure out in the course of the play who they are or who they were not, and Havel knows that and talks to us about it, particularly in his letters to Olga, he writes quite a bit about it. Um, so, uh, he, but he's interested in 
what happens to identity when it collapses. It somehow, um, he uses the word even uh, in, in uh, translation, he uses identity in crisis, when uh, it is collapsing, dissipating, vanishing. I would go even a step further, and uh, far be it from me uh, from ever going a step further than Havel. Um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, in, in, for example, the, the Garden Party, the very first long play that he wrote, we don't know by the end, not only that we don't know the, uh, the identity of the uh, protagonist, but we don't know any longer what identity is because uh, Hugo, uh, who has become, uh, uh, who has made a career on the basis of learning a new language, uh, uh, sort of bureaucratic language, which is also quite topical for us, I think, um, uh, he uh, comes home to, to see his parents and um, um, uh, they ask him, they don't recognize him, they ask him, who, who, who are you, dear son, who are you now? To which he gives them a on print, two-page long explanation that you can't ask anybody who he or she is because the human being is so multi-leveled, so changeable, so difficult to assess, you can't put it into a word. And it's quite a magnificent speech in a way because in some way, peripherally, he's right. You can't just say who anybody is. You simplify things that way. But his parents just stand there with their mouth open and they say, oh, he spoke so beautifully, <laughs> they have no idea who he is, neither, neither does the audience. Um, the, um, with the, uh, in, in the difficulties of concentration, the, the question of identity, and I'm just uh, uh, delighted that the play has, has been on here. It's a very favorite play of mine, which has been underestimated. And there, the identity problem is subtler, and I will leave it aside because I must not take more time from my, um, you know, venerable colleagues, and I feel quite uh, uh, embarrassed as uh, being the first to speak, because from now on, from me, things will go uphill. Um, uh, with, um, but what I would like to draw your attention to is with the Vanyak place. The Vanyak place, we all maybe know Vanyak, the lovable character of the three Vanyak plays. I hope some of you have seen them in the productions, which I'm just, uh, haven't seen them yet, but I will try still to see them. And uh, uh, there Vanyak is the dissident, the decent guy, the guy who lives among these dubious, not evil, the others, they are not evil, not at all. In fact, the brewmaster is quite lovable. Uh, but uh, he lives in this dubious um, half-light of people trying to make a go of things, whatever they are. Yeah? And um, uh, so Vanyek comes out uh, as clean as smelling of roses, if you wish, which he brings once, the hostess. And, uh, but at the end, in the last three minutes of the play, Havel, with a twist, brings back Vanek on stage. And uh, in the audience, if, I don't know how it is acted here, but in the audience, Havel comes, sorry, Vanek comes. I just, this was a Freudian slip, because uh, Vanek is not Havel's alter ego, as has often been said, that oversimplifies things. He's not, it's another character. So you see, even, even I have colored off on this idea. Um, and um, 
then uh, Vanya comes back and sits down with the brewmaster, a totally changed man. He said, oh, well, it all goes to hell anyway, uses, using some four-letter words, which I will not entertain you with, but if you want, I could. And, uh, <laughs> and then sits down and says, oh, let's have a beer. He has avoided this beer all through. And we think, who was this wonderful character? Did he change? And when I taught the play, my students said, so what? He changed, didn't he? He became, he adapted himself. He, uh, he wanted to become one of the crowd. He changed, didn't he? And I said, no, 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 just watch it. This is a play. And it makes you think, because Havel always does a probe into, into, into uh, consciousness and wants his audience leaving the theater not uh, in calm of mind or passion spent, you know, as uh, uh, Milton wanted us to, but uh, the passions burning and saying, now what was this about? How does it relate to my life? So this is, these are all wonderful things that apply to, to our times and they were written. Uh, this play was written in the mid-70s. Yeah? Um, and uh, now we are Perhaps some of you uh, uh, were not even born then. Yeah? I assure you, I was. Um, now, um, uh, another point here uh, in uh, uh, Largo di Solato, and uh, you have uh, uh, Carol Rocamora, you, the, the, the book uh, in which she describes all the plays and gives you the background and the context. It's a wonderful book. and. Uh, uh, called Acts of Courage. And uh, we, uh, we find him then, I'm quoting Carol here, that um, uh, he is, uh, uh, he, the um, uh, protagonist is also in a crisis because of his identity. He wonders, should I go to prison in order to preserve my identity as a dissident, or shouldn't I? In the end, he doesn't go to prison, but he practically wants to go to prison. And uh, uh, also, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, the, the play is left open uh, with an open door or with your open mind, uh, and he just, it just repeats something that happened in the beginning. Uh, but again, you have the crisis of identity of, of the hero, and uh, I'm, I'm using the word very lightly here, identity. Almost I use the football image uh, as I started, but it's, uh, it, I, I myself use the football here, uh, or rather a football one doesn't, uh, anyway, I leave that to your imagination. Uh, but uh, one mustn't use it lightly, even such a term. Yeah? And uh, Kundara sat down and wrote a novel on l'identité, so uh, there he sees it quite differently again. I won't go into that. You'll be glad to hear. Uh, but, uh, the, but identity, not, not a slight on, on Kundera at all, rather a slight on my understanding the novel. Um, what I want to say on the whole is that identity runs, the problem runs deep, in deep waters in Havel's uh, latest uh, uh, plays as well in Temptation. We don't know Faustka. Yeah, but who is Faustka? Is he seducing just women? Is he seducing the devil, which is a bit harder? Is, is he seducing his own psyche? Yeah, we don't know. And the play is open. They dance away from the stage. He's in flames, but never mind. This is a sort of image that, uh, uh, that uh, goes with the theater. Uh, but uh, then there is... Um, uh, redevelopment, which has also been translated as, um, as um, 
slum clearance and watch how much a title means. If I tell you I'm going to see a redevelopment tonight, you say, aha, uh -huh, good, redevelopment, sounds good. If I tell you I'm going to see slum clearance tonight, you'll say, oh, now what is that about? Uh, so the title speaks, the, uh, somebody said, what's in a name? Quite a lot, quite a lot. Um, now, my third point, um, and I must be very quick, I hope, um, I didn't look at the watch when I started, sorry, um, is language. Now, what are we going to do with language? How to, uh, how to tackle it? It's extremely relevant for us today, perhaps in any age, but for us today, particularly because we use probably for anything many more words than, than people used in the past. Correct me if I am wrong. What I'll do is, in Havel's footsteps, I will just give you a tiny little conversation between a father and a daughter. And uh, uh, I, I will still interject here that with language, I'm taking Havel's um, uh, uh, description for it. It is uh, language. Who are the monsters that we have created in language? Clichés. Yeah. We had that word. Uh, evasive thinking. Havel has taught us that word. And false contextualization, which sounds very highfalutin, but it's very close to evasive thinking. And I will give you a couple of tiny examples. But first, the little discussion, or rather conversation, between a father and a daughter. Not a very big daughter. Ten, I don't know. Um, daughter, Daddy, what's a cliché? The father, oh, well, you see, Susie, um, it's a French word. And I think uh, it was originally a printer's word. Uh, when they print a sentence, they have to take the separate letters and put them one by one into a sort of groved stick. That was when print, my interjection, that was when, when uh, um, printing was still an art, which it isn't anymore, with apologies to any printers here. Um, uh, uh, but for words and sentences, which people use often, the printer keeps little sticks uh, of letters ready-made up, and these ready-made sentences are called clichés. And we all have lots of, father is still speaking, we all have lots of ready-made phrases and ideas. And the printer has ready-made sticks uh, in a, uh, all sorted out into phrases. And if we wish to have new so thoughts or new sticks, we have to break up all our ready-made ideas and shuffle the pieces. And uh, so that the word cliché is beautifully uh, described here. It's not my conversation. It is Gregory from Gregory Bateson's Wonderful Steps uh, to an Ecology of Mind, uh, 1972, but reprinted very lately. Um, Havel's gigantic struggle with language, and he didn't even know that it was a gigantic, he didn't see himself as a, gen as a gigantic uh, struggler. Um, they began very early, and he spoke about schematized, about phraseological schemata, which when applied to different kinds of reality have, without noticing it, separating, and this is very important, separated thought from immediate contact with reality. 
And I'm sure you have heard speeches um, given, and uh, you think, where is reality when you think at the assumptions of the speech? Uh, just open a book uh, play by Havel, and you will see that um, uh, the, uh, it, is, it is full of, uh, uh, of cliches galloping through the text, dancing for you, and challenging you to uh, recognize them for what they are. Um, in the, uh, yeah, thanks. Yes, yes, I, am I 20 minutes? The, uh, um, just, I'll just be very, uh, very brief here because one always, um, I talk aside and this is a mistake, so forgive me. Um, uh, the, the evasive thinking came to, to Havel's mind particularly about a small pragmatic uh, event in Prague when a window ledge fell and killed a woman. The papers after that wrote that uh, window ledges tend to fall, but they should not really fall. And really, we have to see that in the future, window ledges will not fall and, uh, because we have a magnificent future in front of us and uh, for which we have to work. A page of, uh, in the newspaper, and, and the poor woman killed was no longer an issue. So there's evasive language for you. One word still on, on uh, increased difficulties of concentration, where evasive language is used in a different way. Again, a protagonist trying to keep order in his life and in his uh, lady friends and others, is trying to, um, uh, to um, he's using evasive language when he gets into hot water, when the women ask him, oh, you should have really got a divorce and one asks him, the other one asks him, um, who, what, uh, what are you going with our future, and so on. He's, he's obviously, it's a dicey situation. What does he do? What would you do? He suggests that there is lunch waiting in the oven, and it's a good lunch. And here the evasive thinking, here it goes from the general to the particular, it works beautifully, and the window ledge syndrome, as you can call it, works both ways. And this is uh, Havel's greatness in the, uh, uh, one of Havel's greatnesses. Well, I will, uh, um, I will uh, be silent from now on, uh, but I would just like to, uh, uh, to point out that when we watch um, uh, Havel's plays or read his texts, and we have wonderful new translations, the memorandum has been newly translated by uh, uh, Paul Wilson, uh, whom I want to write a book about Havel's language. Um, the, uh, uh, the, we have to look beyond the words, and the words have to become for us an almost net into which through these words, we look at a deeper reality, a deeper, um, a, a deeper um, uh, and a deeper thoughts will occur in our minds. And this is what Havel did to, to the last century, uh, but uh, with great interruptions. We were luckier to, to, to see his place here when, he, when his own nation was deprived of his place. But this is how I want you to watch. Look through the words at the depth and uh, you will conceive what Václav Havel is really doing for our, our times. Thank you very much.
Thanks very much, Marketa. Uh, we'll move right on to our next uh, speaker, uh, Paul Wilson, whom many of you here at Columbia had the pleasure to see yesterday, uh, giving Havel an assist at his, uh, his lecture. Uh, Paul is a freelance writer and editor, and of course, a, a very distinguished translator who has translated, in addition to a great deal of Havel's work, a work by uh, many other of, of the most important uh, Czech writers of this century, including Josef Škvorecki, Bohumil Hrabal, and Ivan Klima. Uh, and of course, he's the only member of our panel who ever played guitar with the plastic people of the universe. Uh, so, so far. Uh, so I'm very happy to invite Paul to come and speak uh, about some of his experiences uh, translating Havel. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll sit down because I, I think that uh, the podium is a little awkward. Is this microphone on? It yeah. is on. Okay. Um, and you can hear me, can you? Um, Chris, you said something at the beginning about, uh, about how uh, we on, on the panel uh, know things about Havel that no, no one else knows. Uh, as, as Havel's longtime translator, I sometimes feel that I know more, more about Havel than he does sometimes. And I, I, I don't mean that to sound uh, egotistical. I can give you an example, a, a concrete example of how this happens. Um, uh, the second work and the first book of Havel's that I translated was Letters to Olga, which is uh, his, the letters that he wrote in prison. And uh, the conditions in which this, this uh, book, uh, I say book in quotation marks because it wasn't conceived of as a book at first, but the conditions in which it was written uh, were about the, the most awful you could imagine. I mean, there was censorship within censorship within censorship. There was the, the, the general censorship in, in the country. There was a censorship inside the prison. And every letter that he wrote had to be subjected or had, was read by the director of, of the pr prison, who was a nasty, vindictive person who, uh, on the slightest provocation, would hold the letter back and not, not allow it to get out. So Havel developed uh, one technique for getting around this censorship, and that was to write uh, letters uh, on topics that were so obscure and so <laughs> convoluted that the uh, that he hoped the prison director would simply throw up his hands and say, I don't really know what the guy is saying, but it doesn't look harmful, so I'll let it go. <laughs> so these letters were, were later collected um, uh, and edited, or rather sort of put together, compiled, I suppose, by Jan Lopatka. Havel's initial intention for the book was to cut out all the stuff about send me socks and, and uh, the, the sort of the, the daily bread stuff that you write to your wife from prison and just leave the more substantial pieces of work. But uh, Jan Lopatka, who's a brilliant literary critic, uh, who saved many writers from themselves by, uh, <laughs> by not allowing them to do to their work what they wanted to do or what the censors wanted them to do, uh, uh, prevailed. And uh, the letters were, were published in their entirety. Uh, and he wrote in his introduction that they form a kind of a novel. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm continually astonished people who, there was a young woman who came up to me this morning and said that she just read letters to Olga. She read them in one sitting, or not in one sitting, but she read them through uh, and was drawn just by, by the kind of internal story of these letters. Uh, there's no narrative to it. It's just a man in prison writing to, to his wife in these, in these very constrained circumstances. But when I started to translate it, I ran into uh, a large number of problems. I could not understand what he was saying. Um, he used a lot of um, language which came from the German translated in, into Czech. It was phenomenological language, the phenomenology of prison uh, uh, writing, I suppose, would you know apply here. Uh, and and these 
these words and expressions from Heidegger were translated into Czech, and then Havel, who is not a philosopher, he's a, he's a philosophe, um, uh, uh, used these words in his letters to his wife to describe his sense of his own being in the world. Uh, these are the passages, uh, the letters on identity. And uh, so Havel was in, in Czechoslovakia, and I at that point was persona non grata and could not go. So I used the underground channels that were available to write Havel a long letter with 300 questions. I said, what did you mean on this in, in instance and that instance? And I got about a month and a half or two months later because the post went very slowly in those days. Now we just email each other and it's instantaneous. He, uh, he wrote back and he said, you know, I don't really know what I meant. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> So there I was left hanging out to dry and I had to actually uh, uh, kind of decode these, these letters and, and that's what I say when I, when I mean when, when, when I say that, that, that I, I sometimes felt that you know, in coming to grips with this particular translation, I got to know Havel a little better than perhaps he wanted to know himself because he, once that episode in his life was over, uh, he never reverted, thank God, to that style of writing. Um, <laughs> So I, I spent a great deal of time uh, looking for help, and I got a, I got a lot of help from uh, a friend of his, Eugene Niemetz, who is now no, no longer with us. But uh, I traveled to Vienna, and, and Eugene and I sat down for several days and, and uh, went, went over all these questions. And uh, for me, it was an education just talking to Eugene about, about phenomenology and about what Havel meant. And uh, uh, so that's what I say. Some, sometimes a translator actually can penetrate uh, further into the mind of a writer than the writer knows, because a lot of what, uh, uh, a lot of, not a lot, but some of what a writer writes is, is written um, out of inspiration and not necessarily out of conscious awareness of what it means. But when you're a translator, you have to actually figure out what the, what the writer means. Very often there's ambiguity in a translation and it's very difficult to get this, a similar kind of ambiguity in the English, and therefore you find yourself making uh, one choice where there could be three, um, uh, or going for one level of meaning when, when, when there, there could be more. So um, that's one of the problems of, of translating Havel at that particular period. Um, the problem of writing and censorship is an interesting one, uh, and one of the things that Eugene Niemetz told me about Havel was that uh, he always wrote as though there were no censorship. Uh, and that was one of the things that distinguished him from uh, uh, a lot of his contemporaries. He never took censorship in, into account. Now, I don't think that's quite true because it was impossible not to take it into account. But he never wrote in such a way that he, uh, that he would leave th things out or say things indirectly just to make sure that he got published. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why his writing is still vivid today, because he's avoided not only the cliches, but also he's avoided the techniques that, that a lot of writers use to evade or get around censorship. Um, and so his writing, even uh, an essay like, like uh, Evasive Thinking, which was actually originally a speech that he made to the Writers Union in 1965, I believe, uh, is, a, is a marvel of kind of direct speech. And it's all the more marvelous if you realize the context of that, of that speech. And, the, and if you go, I'm, 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 I can guarantee you, if you go back and look at other speeches made of that same Congress, you will find that he was surrounded by evasive thinking and by evasive language. And what the language is trying to evade was censorship, uh, or cen censure, I guess you might say. Um, one of the remarkable things about Havel's writing 
uh, is, or if you look at his work over the period of, let's say, his first public appearance, first recorded public appearance uh, in a, a, writer, a young writers' conference in 1956, every time he spoke or every time he, he published an essay, um, it had a, a kind of historical impact. It, had, it, it actually had an impact on the way people thought and felt and, and behaved. So that uh, if you look at, um, for example, the letter to Dr. Husak, uh, or The Power of the Powerless, which I consider to be two of his seminal essays from the 1970s, these were more than just essays. They were actually historical events because they moved people to uh, a new understanding of where they were living and suggested a form of action that might be taken to uh, improve their, their, their conditions. Now for a translator, this is a real hard problem because um, you cannot, uh, you can publish the letter to Dr. Husak in the West or you can publish uh, The Power of the Powerless, but it will never have quite the same impact no matter how good the translation is, as it did in its original context. Uh, nevertheless, I, I, I do think that uh, it's interesting to look at, at the history of these, of these essays um, outside of Czechoslovakia in translation. Um, one of the first uh, sort of fruits that was borne by, uh, by The Power of the Powerless, which is written after Charter 77 came out, and which argues that because the totalitarian because the totalitarian, totalitarian, I can't say it, re regime was so total, uh, the, the control was so absolute, that uh, any act of, uh, of truth that, that broke through the, the veneer of lies would actually have a tremendous impact and that the, and the power that people who had no power had was the power to live in truth. Uh, this essay was translated into Polish and it was circulated among the factories uh, of Poland in 1978 when, when uh, CORE was just getting go going and it was sort of pre-solidarity days. And uh, I talked to, uh, I, I was in Poland in 1989 and I interviewed uh, Zbigniew uh, Bujak who was one of the activists then, and I said, uh, did you read this essay? And he said, did we read it? He said, it was a, it was a turning point in our experience because we realized that, that, uh, that uh, uh, you know, here was, a, here was a, uh, a kind of a, not a formula, but the, here, here was something that suggested that there was a way out of the impasse that we found ourselves in. I have a copy of The Power of the Powerless in Spanish. Uh, it's big enough to put in your shoe, <laughs> and it's being smuggled into Cuba, and uh, there's, a, there's an, a library in Havana, uh, which is illegal, but it's there. It's called the Václav Havel Library. Um, and, and so this essay is now circulating around in Cuba, and I can imagine the impact that this must have on, on people who are there. Uh, I asked um, a, um, a Cuban activist who was living in Washington, Frank Calzon, uh, if he had any feedback from, from this essay, from uh, his, his contacts inside Cuba. And he said, yes, we do. The Cubans say, uh, uh, this Havel, um, he's Cuban, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, but it's not, a, it's not a Spanish name. Who is he? And the reason why they think he's Cuban is because uh, th what he has written speaks directly to their situation. So, um, there are contexts in which uh, that essay, which is written to uh, kind of break through the veneer of, of to totalitarianism, actually still works in that way. 
In English, fortunately, um, you know, there are no societies that are quite that bad where English is the lingua franca. So it's, it's more of an intellectual excitement to read the, to read the, the book, although, uh, to read the, the, the essay, although even, uh, even then, this notion of living in, in truth is not an easy thing to, to do. In fact, in, in, in many ways, it's more complex here in the West to, uh, because truth is not, truth is in, in, a, in a totalitarian situation where truth is expropriated by a regime, it's, it's, it's uh, somehow easier to see the difference between good and bad, good and evil uh, than, than it is here where things are more ambiguous. Uh, which is another reason why Havel's plays are, are so brilliant, be because they, they do express that, uh, that ambiguity quite well, and, uh, and it make, makes a difference. So, um, I wanted to um, just mention a couple of other things here before I give up and pass the baton. There's something, when I, when I read Havel's essays, the essays written uh, before 1989, um, and I asked myself why they were so powerful. Uh, the answer that I come up with is, is not, it sounds a bit simplistic, but Havel, more than any other uh, of his contemporaries, not more than any other of his contemporaries, but in a, in a, in a very sort of, he had a, a rhetorical style that, 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 uh, that uh, his analysis of what was wrong with his society was right. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, that there, there are m many people who have analyzed totalitarianism, and there's a lot of truth in most of these analyses. But Havel's analysis went right to the human core of the problem. Um, it's uh, when '89 came, um, people that uh, have had studied Czechoslovakia for a long time were saying things like, "Well, this is the triumph of freedom," uh, and. I wasn't so sure about that. If you go back and you read Havel's essay, he doesn't talk a lot about freedom. Freedom is not one of his themes. Uh, human rights are not one of his themes in his literature. Uh, he's certainly a, uh, a supporter of human rights, uh, but as a, as a writer, he's more interested in what I would call the problem of humiliation. I think, myself, that uh, even more basic than the desire for freedom in human nature is the desire for some kind of justice, the desire for dignity. And one of the things that the, uh, that the, that the, the system consistently did to people was it humiliated them. If you, if you look at Havel's plays, uh, especially, let's say, for example, the play Protest, uh, where the television writer is saying, I'm, I, I can't stand the, the, the humiliation that I go through every day. It's that humiliation that Havel really understood, uh, and, and he understood how, how people were, uh, uh, how, how you know, the uh, constant pressure of the regime, the constant humiliation of people, uh, would, would be a sort of a driving force in, in changing society. And when I was standing on, on Wenceslas Square in 1989, with millions of people around jangling their, their, their keys, the sense of relief you felt was not uh, a sense that now we have freedom, it was a sense that this period of humiliation is over. The period of artificial fear is over. Interesting thing, um, I'm, I'm getting a little bit away from Havel, but not really away from his themes. One of the most surprising things to me about the Velvet Revolution, which Havel's writing helped to bring along, but not just his writing and his actions, was that 
uh, fear, the fear that he described in his letter to Husak, the spider that sits at the middle of society with its web going out through all, all of society, the, the secret police sitting and listening, watching, controlling. Um, that vanished overnight. It was gone in, a, in an instant, as though it was never there. Uh, whereas the business of creating a society in which freedom has a form and a function and can actually uh, have, uh, be institutionalized in politics is a long, long struggle. Freedom is something you have to create. But freedom from, freedom from uh, humiliation and, and, and fear is something that you can get right away. It's instant gratification. And I, I had a conversation once with uh, uh, a Cuban intellectual, Carlos Montaner, who lives in Flor Florida and Spain. And he said a very interesting thing. He said, uh, the reason why fear vanishes right away and humiliation can be, can be corrected quickly is because the basis of that fear and the basis of that humiliation is artificial. And once you take away the artifice, uh, once you take away the regime, it's gone and, uh, and there you, can, you, can, uh, you can proceed to live your life. Uh, and I think that, that is, it was actually a great insight. And uh, he, uh, uh, of course, was, is, uh, as, a, as a Cuban intellectual, is fascinated by Havel. And um, I, I think that uh, he really believes that the insights that, that Havel had will, will apply to that, that society. And I think that the results of this little book floating around the, the countryside in, in, in Cuba uh, will bear fruit at some point, I hope, soon. So I'm going to stop there. Um, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot more to say. I just wanted to pick up on one thing that you said, Mar Marquette, about Stoppard. Tom Stoppard, the relation between Stoppard and, and Havel is an interesting one. And uh, Stoppard spoke at the opening uh, of his play in London, Rock and Roll, which is, uh, has a Czech uh, Havelian sort of theme to it. Um, and and uh, he used a phrase which I think is quite good. He said, Havel, uh, has, uh, is, uh, his great strength is his moral imagination. And I'll leave you with that phrase. I think it needs a lot of parsing, but, uh, but it's, I, I think it's absolutely true that there is, there's a moral dimension to his imagination that, that many writers do not have. I'm gonna try and go very, very quickly here, um, starting with the most prosaic and moving towards the most profound. Um, the first uh, announcement is, if you have your cell phones on, please turn them off. Um, welcome to the 21st century. Uh, the second uh, announcement is, as Kathy mentioned, my name is Bradley Abrams. I teach Eastern European history here, and I'm also associate director of the Harriman Institute. I'm going to very briefly run down the future events, because there may have been some people who were not here this morning. Um, next Tuesday, we will have a talk by Barbara Mason, Machine and Jan Novak um, about the machine events of the early 1950s, the anti-communist resistance. Havel's Beggar's Opera is going to be performed on Friday and Saturday, the 1st and 2nd of November, under the direction of Amy Trumpeter, who's... December. What did I say? November. November? December. Uh, uh, December. And many of the actors are in the audience. And many of the actors are in the audience as well. And finally, on December 7th, not a date which will live in infamy for us, Yerji Dienstbeer will be coming. I trust he needs no introduction. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to thank Chris and all the participants in the first half of this for giving us a wonderfully entertaining and informative morning. 
And I'd also like to thank the Harriman family, the Harriman Institute, and the director, Kathy Nepomyashi, uh, without whose funding and support, uh, this event would never have taken place. This is really <coughs> remarkable. And so I'm remarking upon it. Um, and also the staff that helped us put together everything that was necessary, particularly Ala Rajkop, who I'm sure is running around here somewhere, taking care of something. Outside of the Harriman Group, I'd like to thank Lee Bollinger for inviting Hobble. I think he should be invited. And of course, Gregory Mosher at the back. Um, but finally, it's my great pleasure and honor to introduce the participants uh, in this afternoon's discussion. They're all important people who have taken time out of their very busy schedules to share with us their thoughts on Václav Havel's activities as both a, despite his dislike of the term, as a dissident and as a president. So now that I've delayed the important part of this long enough, I'll introduce the first of our speakers. I'll introduce them sequentially. The first of our speakers sitting immediate, immediately to my left here is Ambassador Martin Kalosh, who is currently the ambassador of the Czech Republic to the United Nations and a former Czech ambassador to the United States. He was one of the first signatories of Charter 77 and served as a spokesman in 1986. A founding member of Civic Forum, he was elected to the Federal Assembly in 1990 and became a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, he joined the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Czechoslovakia as an advisor to Minister Jerzy Dienstbier, who's coming next month, uh, and was Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs from October 1990 to October 1992. So without any further ado, Ambassador Powell. Good afternoon, and uh, thanks for having me in this uh, very interesting uh, uh, symposium. Uh, it's indeed was a very dazzling and great morning, so I hope that I will not be frustrating you with my presentation. Uh, actually, it seems to me that it's a little bit more difficult uh, to speak about Václav Havel uh, as a politician uh, then it is to discuss uh, his uh, uh, artistic achievements uh, because still he is artist uh, by profession and uh, a politician by coincidence, I believe. Uh, coincidence that is not that coincidental, uh, but still, I think, uh, he is a politician as any one of us uh, can be uh, under certain uh, circumstances. And why it is also difficult to speak here today is that what I think is generally expected is a kind of eulogy, that we will be all just praising Václav Havel and uh, speaking about him uh, uh, with admiration, which uh, for sure he deserves. Uh, I would like to also raise some uh, critical questions and comments, because uh, when you want to understand his uh, uh, politics and his concepts, sometimes uh, you may be uh, even puzzled and not be, uh, be not to be sure that you understand well, and especially uh, if these concepts are to be used as a uh, saving councils, as political ideas in the proper sense of uh, uh, the word. 
I picked up uh, uh, the most challenging uh, uh, concept to talk uh, uh, about uh, this afternoon, anti-political uh, politics. Uh, actually, uh, I don't need to uh, criticize Václav myself. I only can point to some of his critics because I don't know about any other concept that has been so criticized as the concept of anti-political uh, politics. Uh, this concept appeared, uh, and Paul Wilson knows that pretty well because he translated that piece in his essay, uh, uh, Politics and Conscience, uh, dated February 1984. And uh, it's interesting coincidence that in the same year, uh, another important essay was published, uh, Milan Kundera's uh, essay published in New York Review of Books, uh, The Tragedy of Central Europe. It's an interesting comparison because the tragedy of Central Europe basically uh, speaks about the end of Central Europe in certain sense. That as an entity that is uh, on the way out from the European history. And paradoxically, the Havel's essay, Politics and Conscience, uh, uh, meant or could be seen as a kind of rebirth of uh, uh, the same entity. Uh, at the moment when uh, 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 Milan Kundera tried to write this epitaph. Uh, uh, Václav Havel was presenting uh, certain Central European ideas uh, that uh, it turned out had some political power and efficiency and were able, uh, in fact, to start doing uh, something. Uh, what seems to me very important, just to give you a couple of uh, uh, Havel's formulations his definition of what uh, uh, anti-political politics is. It is politics from below, politics of men, uh, not of the apparatus, politics growing from the heart, heart not from a thesis. It is, uh, oh dear, too many papers here. Uh, it is not politics as the technology of power and manipulation of cybernetic rule over humans, or as the art of utilitarian, but politics as one of the ways of seeking, achieving meaningful lives, of protecting them and serving them. I favor politics as practical morality. Indeed, uh, very uh, strange words in the context when politics was turned into a really very refined form of manipulation with uh, uh, citizens of Central Europe. Uh, very strange concept even when we have to take into consideration the historical context, Charter 77, as a way how to oppose uh, to the existing situation that tried uh, to be uh, not political movement, uh, but a human rights initiative uh, trying to lead a dialogue with the regime, uh, trying to speak for human rights. And I think that uh, anti-political politics is still part of that uh, uh, tradition. The question is, and I am confronted with this problem again and again when I'm supposed to talk uh, under these uh, or similar circumstances, what I'm to say? Uh, because uh, we can go back and to talk about these old times. Uh, I can feel, and I do feel very often in that situation, like an object in a museum uh, being uh, 
a little bit worn out and uh, trying to describe myself then. And I don't know what to do about it. I remember uh, it was in the Hannah Arendt's book, and I'm going to speak about uh, Hannah Arendt uh, uh, here uh, this afternoon. Uh, she mentioned in one of her essays, uh, uh, Between Past and Future, Beautiful Aphorism uh, by French poet René Char, who had uh, this problem uh, after he experienced uh, the resistance movement during the Second World War and then after the liberation and uh, the uh, victorious efforts of Charles de Gaulle to bring France back to uh, the European political scene, that something got lost. And he speaks in this aphorism about a um, legacy that was left to us without testament. As a uh, legacy that is here, that uh, should be remembered, that everybody believes that it is uh, important, but we don't know what to do about it. Uh, what is uh, the situation of anti-political politics today? Uh, should we recommend it as a method, uh, how to do things uh, in our world of politics today? Or what is, what is anti-politics today? Uh, we should remember that uh, right after the Velvet Revolution, uh, when uh, Václav Havel uh, was transformed miraculously and to his own surprise from dissident to president, uh, entire political politics uh, started to be uh, criticized. And uh, I can uh, immediately start with very serious uh, arguments uh, made by people like Ralph Darndorf in his seminal book, uh, The Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, uh, that tried to draw certain comparison between uh, the events of uh, 1989 and the French Revolution 200 years before, because uh, the Reflections on the Revolution in Europe was a repetition of the same effort by Edmund Barck. Uh, it was also a letter to be sent to a gentleman in uh, Paris, in the Barks case, uh, to gentleman in Warsaw, in the case of Ralph Darendorf. And here, uh, Ralph Darendorf certainly doesn't recommend uh, anti-political politics as uh, uh, inspiration, but he rather uh, speaks in the uh, uh, language or in the tone of Edmund Burke about uh, the necessity to build standard, traditional, liberal institutions. The strange thing about the Havel's essay is indeed that he does not only criticize totalitarian uh, system that existed in uh, Czechoslovakia in uh, 1984 or before 1989, uh, but his target is also the West. Uh, liberal uh, democracies are also exposed to civil danger, according to Václav Havel. And just to give you a couple of thoughts or uh, quotations, uh, just to evoke the atmosphere of 1990, uh, François Fire, French historian, with all this fuss and noise, not a single new idea has come out of Central Europe in 1989. Uh, Timothy Garden Ash, the ideas whose time has come are old, familiar, and well-tested ones. It is the new ideas whose time has passed. And if I remember the atmosphere in the beginning of the 90s, uh, and we can easily personalize that, uh, I would say, exchange of opinions. Now president of the Czech Republic, Václav Klaus, was, I think, the most outspoken uh, representative of this school of thought. 
those who uh, uh, happened still to be part of that tradition connected with anti-political politics were labeled as uh, utopians. Uh, someone who would like to uh, 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 invent third ways uh, to find, uh, to, uh, you know, just I can repeat again, uh, politics as practical morality. Politics uh, from below done by the heart and not as a thesis. Uh, what can you do uh, uh, with that if uh, what you need to do is what uh, Ralph Darndorf is, was asking us to do is uh, really to build institutions to transform a profoundly negative force of revolution into the architectonic power of law-making and city-building. And uh, so uh, it was very clear that during the 90s, uh, anti-political politics was almost, uh, almost disappeared. Uh, when we want now to uh, see our um, situation or just to reflect on our experience in the past 17 years, what has been the status of anti-political politics here? Uh, maybe it has been turned into a very important uh, reminder that uh, uh, politics from below, let's say the politics not through uh, the political parties but uh, through NGOs is important component of a system uh, that uh, politics uh, by the heart means that uh, uh, politics as technology of power, politics uh, of populistic politicians needs to be balanced with some other elements uh, heard in our public discourse. I can go on and on, but I would like to mention one thing only. Uh, the most important thing which uh, can be said in this context is that when, you, when we see uh, the time changing uh, between 1980, uh, 1989 and now, uh, we are uh, certainly not led to that famous and then criticized conclusion that 1989 was the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama uh, liked to say. But I don't think they know it's so easy to, uh, to reject this thesis, and Francis Fukuyama is uh, one of the great uh, political minds of today. But I think that the end of history was rather uh, practiced uh, by all political advisors, all uh, political institution builders in uh, uh, Czechoslovakia and then in the Czech Republic and Slovakia afterwards. Politics was, uh, we uh, now can easily and proudly, or not, not easily but proudly say, that uh, we made it. Uh, we returned to Europe, we returned to all these institutions, we turned ourselves into more or less relative, uh, relatively successful and stable liberal democracy. But what happened in the meantime, the world uh, is changing too. Uh, the world uh, is giving us an opportunity again to think about new beginnings. If I'm going to go back to Václav Havel's own quotations, or, to, or his own words, uh, let me to remind you uh, this one. I think it must be somewhere here. Uh, Anti-political politics is possible and can be effective. Even thought by its very nature, it cannot calculate its effect beforehand. That effect, to be sure, is of a wholly different nature 
from what the West considers political success. It is hidden, indirect, long-term, and hard to measure. It is becoming evident uh, that truth and morality, and now I would like to emphasize that, can provide a new starting for point for politics. And my uh, whole point is that uh, the ability, capacity to make a new beginning, that's the central element of what anti-political politics is about. This new beginning doesn't mean that, uh, entry into a new era uh, with uh, uh, some relatively good prospects to arrive at radiant futures. New beginning is an opportunity to uh, start again, uh, uh, to resist somewhat automatic or automatized flow of events uh, uh, that uh, would keep us uh, prisoners uh, in certain vicious circles if we didn't have that uh, capacity to make a new beginning. Here I think that Václav Havel is, uh, I wouldn't say not disciple, but partner uh, to Hannah Arendt I uh, uh, mentioned. And the most important element of the essay I'm talking about is Václav Havel's emphasis on the necessity to understand totalitarianism, the necessity to understand certain uh, danger that uh, for sure was the uh, most important aspect of politics in the 20th century, and what I'm saying now, uh, danger that has not disappeared with the end of the 20th century, that is with us maybe more than any time before in the beginning of the 21st century. And here again, I think that we should read anti-political politics with new eyes. I think that re-reading uh, this essay of Václav Havel, Politics and Conscience, uh, written in the perspective of 1984, in uh, the perspective of 2006 can be indeed a very useful exercise. Uh, what is totalitarianism? There's a long discussion during the 20th century about this concept. Uh, communism and Nazism are uh, mentioned as two most important, in fact only varieties of this species so one uh, might be led into conclusion that with the fall of communism, it disappeared, it's over. But if we read Arendt and Havel, I think that we need to uh, be aware of certain capacities in our own society, and we need uh, to think about entire political politics in this context. Anna Arendt, uh, when she was about 30 years old, uh, she was exposed to totalitarian radiation in her uh, um, uh, home country in Germany. And then in the 60s, 61, she gave an interview to German radio. And uh, she said there's something quite remarkable. She said, you know, uh, it was not surprising for us what Nazis or Hitler and his supporters did. Uh, we had known before what they were up to. Uh, we did know that they were anti-Semites and hated Jews, but what we were surprised was what our friends did. How quickly they got into line, how quickly they got coordinated with uh, the situation. And the problem of our society is 
this capacity for coordination. This capacity of coordination sometimes masked in uh, the ropes of uh, liberal democracy. Don't uh, misunderstand me, I'm not criticizing liberal democracy. I'm talking about this element, capacity for coordination. Uh, this morning, uh, um, Marketa Getstankevich uh, made a very beautiful, beautiful presentation of the uh, certain basic elements of the Havel's uh, struggle uh, with certain tendencies of our language, uh, cliches, and stock phrases uh, as our greatest uh, enemies. And I think anti-political politics maybe uh, is an attempt to demask uh, these dangerous tendencies. I can read not only for Marketa, but this I think still uh, very important uh, uh, description from the Hannah Arendt's uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. It speaks about war criminal, but I think that it speaks about many uh, potential uh, criminals that are uh, uh, inhabitants of our societies. The deeds were monstrous, but the doer, at least the very effective one now on trial, was quite ordinary, commonplace and neither demonic nor monstrous. There was no sign in him of firm ideological convictions or of specific evil motives, and the only uh, notable characteristics one could detect in his past behavior during the trial and throughout the pre-trial police examination was sometimes uh, something entirely negative. It was not stupidity, but thoughtlessness. In the setting of Israeli court and prison procedures, he functioned as well as he functioned under the Nazi regime. But when confronted with situations for which such routine procedures didn't exist, he was helpless, and his cliche-ridden language produced on the stand, as it had evidently done in his official life, a kind of macabre comedy. Clichés, stock phrases, adherence to conventional, standardized codes of expression and conduct have the socially recognized function of protecting us against reality. That is against the claim on our thinking attention that all events and facts made by virtue of their existence uh, made, uh, made by virtue of their existence. If we were responsive to this claim all the time, we would soon, soon be exhausted. Eichmann differed from the rest of us in that he, that he clearly knew of no such claims at all. And uh, anti-political politics maybe is that uh, way how to wake up uh, society and refresh the language and not allow us to be uh, trapped uh, in the world of stock phrases, automatisms, and uh, uh, our capacity for coordination. Uh, when Havel now speaks about our solidarity with Cuban dissidents, with dissidents anywhere in the world, these are still people in very bad need of uh, making a new beginning. But I think that uh, we are in a very similar situation in one, in one situation with them. Let me to conclude my remarks by quoting from Havel again from uh, the end of his uh, essay, Politics and Conscience. And he uh, uh, ends up with the following question. 
does not the perspective of a better future depend on something like an international community of the shaken, which ignoring state boundaries, political systems, and power blocks, standing outside the high game of traditional politics, aspiring to no titles and appointments, will seek to make a real political force out of phenomenon so ridiculed by the technicians of power, the phenomenon of human conscience. It sounds like a, a great naivety. Uh, maybe, but uh, I'm convinced that this is the only hope we have if we want to think and strategize about new threats this world is confronted with. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Bausch. Our second speaker will be Yerji Pehe, who's currently the director of the NYU in Prague program. Uh, from September 1997 to May 1999, he was the director of President Havel's political department and later served as an advisor to, to Havel. He's also a member of the program committee for Forum 2000, which Carol talked about this morning a little bit, that organizes uh, annual international conferences under Václav Havel's auspices. Well, uh, good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. Um, I have to say that I am um, slightly uneasy because um, uh, this is this is a school. Um, uh, which I attended uh, in the 80s, and I still have a recurring nightmare uh, uh, about uh, uh, not completing this school. I, uh, I wake up sometimes at night sweating uh, because I think I didn't complete one exam, and I will have to um, go into another semester, start another semester, uh, and I don't have enough money to do so. So. Um, for me, uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, with this lecture, the, the, the nightmare will, uh, will go away. Um, anyway, I think it's appropriate, um, when I speak of nightmares, to speak also of Václav Havel, because he had his share of nightmares in his life, and I guess that he must have um, nightmares much, much, worse, much worse nightmares than, than the one I just described. Um, I'm um, supposed to talk about Havel as politician, and I think that in examining Havel as politician, it would be wrong to start with his entry into official politics in 1989. Havel has always been a politician of sorts, even when he was known predominantly as a playwright and a dissident. Most of his writings have dealt one way or the other with politics. He continued uh, a rather long tradition of Czech culture, which during periods of a lack of freedom served as an alternative channel of political communication. Political ambitions, as well as the criticism of various uh, regimes, were expressed through the language of culture. It is an interesting hypothetical question which I often ask myself, whether Havel, if he grew up in freedom, would become an artist or a politician. In light of the fact that both literature and playwriting served Havel often as means of, uh, for criticizing the totalitarian regime, one could argue that Havel was more likely to become a politician. Or in other words, 
did Havel become an artist because given the historical circumstances, he could not become a politician? Or did he eventually become a politician because of historical circumstances? Uh, I would argue um, that Havel has always been too unorthodox to become a successful politician under normal conditions. Uh, he was catapulted into official politics by historical coincidences. If he had to climb, if he had had to climb the, the ladder of party politics, it is quite likely he would have never made it all the way to the top. Uh, but uh, um, uh, he has always been a homo politicus. The fact that Havel became the president by historical accident has influenced his presidency. He was not always willing to play by the rules. Because he was not chosen on the basis of the rules of standard politics, during his entire presidency, he somehow did not fit. Soon he became a source of irritation for many party politicians, and he also irritated an increasing number of ordinary people for whom both his past and moralistic speeches represented an uncomfortable mirror. Surprisingly, he also irritated quite a few intellectuals who could not understand why this man in particular became a favorite son of history. In the end, history, no doubt, will place Havel even at home where he deserves to be. Uh, the adult life of Václav Havel is often analyzed in three separate periods, the artistic, dissident, and political. In reality, in each of those periods, Havel was a writer, a dissident, and a politician at the same time. What connects the three periods most of all is the fact that we can find politics in the background of all of his activities. In the 50s and the 60s, Havel ridiculed or questioned. I, yeah, okay. Uh, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s, Havel ridiculed or questioned the language and practices of communism in his plays and essays and even in some poems. Some uh, speakers uh, uh, spoke about it this morning. And uh, Havel's own political activities, for example, in the Union of Czechoslovak Raiders, um, in the editorial board of some publication and some petition drives were equally important. But even in the 50s, uh, he already was a politician of sorts. In the 70s and the 80s, when Havel could not officially publish and stage his plays, he acted as an unofficial leader of the Czechoslovak dissident movement, which played the role of uh, political opposition to the normalization regime. He considered himself to be a writer and playwright, but his plays as well as essays almost exclusively dealt with political issues. After 1989, he became a professional politician. However, he was a rather unorthodox politician, as I mentioned, who liked to see himself as a dissident of sorts among other politicians. And although he stopped writing plays, he tried to remain a creative writer when writing most of his presidential speeches. Uh, if we analyze all three periods of his life in more detail, it is apparent that politics played an important role in all three of them, both as an activity and as, and as a, a team of his writing. Let's start, let's go through the three periods briefly. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, Havel was seen as one of the most talented young playwrights and writers. Uh, some, some people spoke about it today already. However, he differed from most of his contemporaries in that his plays were not only artistic but also political acts. At the same time, they were deeply rooted in thinking about the alienated world of bureaucratic apparatuses and his plays were in essence parodies of the communist world. 
Havel started his political activities when he was only 20 years old at a meeting of uh, young writers in Dobřiš in 1956. He delivered a rebellious speech, uh, and during this period he also began publishing his poems and essays in the, in the journal Květen and elsewhere. Some of his poems were overly political. The same is true about some of his essays from this period. He was openly critical of the communist regime's bureaucratic nature and of what he called the banality of a certain kind of life, which prevailed in the communist regime. In fact, his first play, Evening with the Family, which he wrote in 1959, was a merciless parody of the communist society Philistines. The Garden Party, which made him famous after it was uh, staged in 1963, again ridiculed the banality of everyday life in a new society. As well as, as well as the language of the bureaucratized communist regime. In a sense, it was a political play and an, an attack on the communist system presented in the form of art. Havel's next play, The Memorandum, written in 1965, is just like the Garden Party, set in the labyrinthine world of bureaucracy, once again in a nameless organization whose purpose is never articulated. Mr. Gross, its managing director arrives at work one morning to find on his office desk a memorandum written in an incomprehensible language, Ptidepe. It turns out that this artificial language has been secretly introduced behind the director's back by his deputy. The director attempts to stop this, but instead he's demoted and replaced by the deputy who introduced the language. When Gross attempts to learn what he what, what is written in his memo, he discovers that he needs a special authorization for a translation, and the application form is in Ptidepe. In other words, as Gross notes, the only way to know what is in one's memo is to know it already. In the end, the Ptidepe plot fails, Gross is reinstated, but only at the cost of tolerating another new language called Horukor. Havel is basically telling us that the system cannot be reformed, just like the communist system. In other words, the first place by Havel were quite political. They ridiculed both totalitarian practices and the absurdity of the totalitarian speak. Although delivered through playwriting, Havel's message was political. At the same time, Havel was a dissident of sorts already then, at least when we compare him with other people who wanted to democratize the communist regime. In 1965, at a conference of Czechoslovak writers, he openly criticized what he ridiculed in his place, conventional and pseudo-ideological thinking, which in his mind permeated the social life of the country and was causing much damage. He also became active in the editorial circle of Tvář, a new cultural, new cultural journal, which was later closed down and revived again for a short period of time in 1969. At the Congress of Czechoslovak Raiders in 1967, Havel delivered a passionate speech in which he demanded the reopening of Tvář. And in March 1968, he signed an open letter with 150 other Raiders and cultural figures addressed to the Central Committee of the Communist Party in which, he, in which the signatories supported further democratization. He was also elected as chairman of a group of Raiders within the Union of Czechoslovak Raiders who were not members of the Communist Party. He tried to put a distance between himself and his communist colleagues in other ways as well. In June 1968, he and some 30 other personalities 
issued a declaration demanding that the Social Democratic Party, which, he had, which had been forcibly merged with the Communist Party in 1948, get a chance to explain to the public why it should be renewed. And he was politically active even after the Soviet invasion. In the spring of 1969, he delivered a powerful speech at the Congress of the newly established Union of Czech Writers. And uh, uh, his, uh, and his uh, last speech for almost 20 years was made at a meeting in Ostrava in June 1969. The communists called the meeting a provocation. In July 1969, Havel quoted a statement addressed to the Federal Assembly, the government, and the Politburo of the Communist Party, in which some cultural figures rejected the process or the policies of normalization. It came as no great surprise that later Havel was vilified in the infamous Communist Party document called The Lessons from the Crisis Development in the Party and Society. In the second period, that is his dissident period, um, Havel became one could say a professional dissident, uh, but he continued to see himself as, uh, as a playwright and writer. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, we all know that his activities focused more and more on practical tasks, uh, which he performed as the unofficial head of the political opposition in the country. The opposi opposition did not exist officially. It did not have its own party, but it had its own undisputed leader, Václav Havel. Even the so-called Vanek plays, which Havel wrote in, in this period, were more openly political than his plays from the 1960s uh, and, uh, and before the end of the 50s. In 1972, he and 30 other writers signed a petition demanding an amnesty for political prisoners. Uh, and uh, one could argue that Havel officially entered politics as the head of the Nassen dissident movement uh, in 1975, when he wrote his famous letter to Gustav Husak, which has been mentioned here several times this morning. Uh, the letter was a, a merciless analysis of social and political conditions under the normalization regime. Among other things, Havel wrote, there are fewer people than ever who really believe everything that the official propaganda says and support the government. On the other hand, we have more hypocrites than ever. To a certain extent, every citizen is being forced to become a hypocrite. A year later, Havel took part in efforts to defend the plastic people of the universe, a rock group whom you, whose concert you can attend this evening, um, and whose members were put on trial uh, during that period. And in 1977, he was one of the organizers and first signatories of Charter 77, a document that launched the human rights movement in Czechoslovakia. And he was one of the first three spokesmen. In 1978, he published his most important political essay, The Power of the Powerless. And of course, um, I presume that all of you have read this essay. And uh, it was a truly penetrating analysis of the decaying communist regime, which has since become one of the classics of political literature of the 20th century. The regime silenced Havel in 1980 when he was sentenced to a four-year prison. His letters to Olga, which were censored by prison authorities, were Understandable, uh, understandably less political, but nevertheless, even there, he managed to get a political message out. However, in 1984, shortly after his release from jail, Havel published another political masterpiece, The Politics and Conscience. Martin Palos spoke about it. And uh, I personally consider, probably just like Martin, uh, this essay to be, 
to be his best political essay. Uh, between 1984 and the fall of the communist regime in 1989, he published a number of other interesting political texts and continued playing a leading role in the dissident movement. Now, the third period, Havel as politician, um, is in a way a continuation of what he, what he had done before. It's very often argued that uh, um, Havel as president was uh, a completely new role, but uh, one could also argue that in light of what I have described, it was a sort of, sort of a natural development for, for Havel. Uh, he was forced to become an active politician, that's, that's true. Uh, he, was, uh, he presided uh, together with some other colleagues over roundtable talks with the collapsing communist regime. Uh, and of course, in the hindsight, it is, uh, hindsight it's, it is of course possible to criticize Havel and other dissidents and some other people um, for uh, being too soft, for preferring uh, what is known today as Velvet Revolution uh, to uh, being really hard on, on the communists. However, given the fact that Havel and his colleagues had little or no experience with professional politics, it can be argued that they managed the transition process quite quite well. Um, Havel became a professional politician, that means the president of Czechoslovakia, on the 29th December 1989. And um, um, it was a truly political role, but one could argue that although, um, or even after he was catapulted by history into the highest position in the country, he remained partly a dissident and partly, uh, certainly partly a writer. The purpose of his writing changed, but many of his speeches were unique philosophical essays. In, in comparison with other domestic and foreign politicians, Havel also spoke about matters that most politicians usually do not touch, global responsibility, the dangerous self-motion of the industrial society, active citizenship, civil society, and, and so on. He played an important role in propagating the important role um, of uh, a vibrant civil society in modern democracies. And I think it was one of the most important roles um, that he um, uh, engaged in uh, after, after the, uh, the collapse of the communist, communist regime. His various speeches and other public statements on the theme of civil society formed the backbone of his political legacy from the time of his presidency. His conflict with Václav Klaus about the role of civil society was basically a conflict about the nature of Czech democracy and democracy in general, in fact. Havel has been often accused of never extricating himself fully from some political concepts that he subscribed to as dissident, most important, the concept of non-political politics that Martin spoke about. Uh, if we simplify, we can say that the followers of this concept believed that politics in a post-communist society should be based more on civil society than on political parties. But it, of course it has other dimensions that, that Martin Palauj described in his speech. Two remarks are in order here. First, as far as the origins of the concepts are concerned, the idea was a logical reaction to the communist environment of inflated partisanship and the symbiosis of the party with the bureaucratized state. Dissidents, and not only in Czechoslovakia, were understandably skeptical about the role of political parties in general. They hoped that after the fall of communism, politics will be much more based on personal engagement, authenticity, and, and so on. At the same time, it is necessary to dispute some views according to which Havel remained, remained faithful to the idea of non-political politics even after 1989. 
It is true that he often criticized political parties, in particular their excessive partisanship and a lack of cooperation with the civil society. At the same time, he recognized early uh, on um, the fact that uh, political parties were indispensable in modern democracies. His main concern was, just like earlier in his life, that parties should not function as mere apparatuses which communicate with the public in their own ptidepe and are alienated from reality. His fears, unfortunately, proved to be quite justified. In an article published on the occasion of the 15th, 15th anniversary of the Velvet Revolution, Havel wrote, 15 years after the fall of communism, we again witness political apathy. Democracy is increasingly seen as a mere ritual. In general, Western societies, it seems, are experiencing a certain crisis of the democratic ethos and active citizenship. It is possible that what we are witnessing is a mere change of par paradigm caused by new technologies and we have nothing to worry about. But perhaps the problem is deeper. Global corporations, media cartels, and powerful bureaucracies are transforming political parties into organizations whose main task is no longer public service, but the protection of specific clientels and interests. Politics is becoming a battleground for lobbyists. Media trivialize serious problems. Democracy often looks like a virtual game for consumers rather than a serious business for serious citizens. When dreaming about a democratic future, we who were dissidents certainly had some utopian illusions as we are well aware, aware today. However, we were not mistaken when we argued that communism was not a mere dead end of Western rationalism. Bureaucratization, anonymous manipulation, and emphasis on mass conformism were brought to perfection in the communist system. However, some of the very same threats are with us today. We were already certain, we were already certain then that if democracy is emptied of values and reduced to a competition of political parties that have guaranteed solutions to everything, it can be quite undemocratic. This is why we put so much emphasis on the moral dimension of politics and the vibrant civil society as counterweights to political parties and state institutions." The end of quote. As far as the future political direction of the Czech Republic was concerned, a, a change in Havel's attitudes to NATO was, an important, uh, was as important as were his various statements on the subject of political parties and civil society. He, he quickly discarded some of his ideas from the dissident era uh, for example, that NATO should be abolished together with the Warsaw Pact and became a very strong advocate of NATO uh, as well as the enlargement of, um, of uh, the European Union. He was also a strong advocate of Czech Republic's uh, uh, alliance with the United States. It may be useful to note now that the EU uh, is going through a rather serious internal crisis uh, that have already in 1998 in a speech in the French Senate um, um, reflected on in, in a speech in the French Senate and he pleaded at that time in a rather revolutionary tone for the creation of uh, a bicameral European Parliament pretty much like the US Congress. Uh, in fact, he was calling for the creation of a European Federation. Even that speech was, uh, I think, an expression of Havel as dissident in, in politics. And I think that uh, his uh, entire era 
political tenure will be once uh, viewed from, from that point of view. Thank you for your attention. And now, finally, it is a very great personal honor for me to present our final speaker, Petr Pithart, who is currently the first deputy chairperson of the Czech Senate and a former chairperson of the Czech Senate, a uh, leading dissident in communist Czechoslovakia as well. But more important, or equally important for me as a historian and a teacher, he is also the author of a penetrating study of 1968, Osama Sheresati is the name of the book, and two other books, Obrana Politiki and Dei Neopolitika. These are important to me. And I bring them up because I'm hoping that someone out there might take the time to translate them so that I can use them in teaching. <laughs> so without any further ado, Petr Pitar. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, friends. I have called my lecture The Dramatic Life of a Playwright. I, I would say that originally in Czech it sounds better, Dramatický život dramatika. <laughs> and the subtitle is Václav Havel, Intellectual, Dissident and Politician. And I would say beforehand that at the very last sentence of my lecture, I will suggest the slight but important change even in the subtitle. To be an intellectual and a dissident is a natural match. To be a former dissident and a politician is a bit of problem. <laughs> to be an intellectual and a politician is almost a contradiction in terms. <laughs> According to the survey carried out by Prospect magazine in 2005, Václav Havel is the fourth most intellectual, foremost influential intellectual in the world. He has won his international renown by managing against all odds to play the three incompatible and contradictory roles of an intellectual, a dissident, and a politician. His background and his vantage point make, make his voice stand out. He was a philosopher on the throne with two prison sentences to add weight to his words. The dramatic arts are his profession as well as his nature. He has introduced, consciously and unconsciously, dramatic elements into all three roles and their combinations. In doing that, he has brought out the tensions between them. At times, he also wanted to create a compelling set for what he was doing. Yet he did not audition for the role of a politician. He only chose not 
to back down when the story of his country and his life presented him with the, this challenge. His intense sense of responsibility, and he would perhaps even admit to it being almost pathological, <laughs> simply did not allow him to escape the tension that existed among these three roles. Although there were certainly moments when he must have enjoyed that tension, I would guess, based on my personal experience, that there were more moments when the tension made him suffer. But there was no turning back. Václav Havel has always been primarily an intellectual. I see an intellectual as someone who doubts and therefore asks questions rather than someone who offers answers. When I say questions, I don't mean rhetorical questions that are so commonly used in politics as well as common conversations to highlight an already known answer. A real question starts out without an answer. A real question nags rather than reassures. An intellectual reigns on a political parade by complicating everything. An intellectual asks questions that have no ready-made answers. Question, questions that can often be answered only by asking more poignant answers. Questions. An intellectual speaks like Socrates' daimonion. He doubts criticize and warns. In this sense, an intellectual is the opposite of an ordinary politician who simplifies, reassures, and hands out promises of Alexander Zinoviev, the radiant future Russian exile writer known for in invention of the term homo sovieticus. I am not saying this to criticize politicians or glorify intellectuals. A healthy society needs them both. The truth is that it is difficult to be an intellectual and politician at the same time. But as Havel has shown, it is not impossible. The philosopher Jan Patochka, who greatly influenced Václav Havel, pointed our attention once again to the demanding and unpopular position of an intellectual in our country. Since the revolution, intellectuals have been in general disfavor. Václav Klaus has been working hard to nurture and fuel this disfavor, which departs from the premise that intellectuals are, as Ludwig von Hayek would put it, specialist of the general, that they really have no tangible skills and their livelihood therefore depends on institutions. Supposedly, intellectuals stand politically on the left because they feed off of the state. My response is that those intellectuals who are truly left-leaning 
uh, that way mainly because they tend to overestimate human reason, which is the main building material of leftist ideologies. The courage and ability to doubt marks intellectuals not only on the left, but also on the right. As an intellectual, Havel has never been an ideologist. A number of people, including those who are close to him, have a hard time accepting, accepting how skeptical he is when it comes to the power of human reason and how open he is to extra-rational aspects of life. They have, a, they have a hard time reconciling with his almost heretical pessimism when it comes to science. The fact is that he has a set of safe, safeguards against ideology wired in him. Václav Havel is an intellectual in the critical, doubting, and anti-ideological sense of the word. He is an intellectual and dissident who found himself in top-level politics. Václav Havel was the most prominent figure of Czechoslovak and Czech dissent. The dissent community was very diverse. It covered all possible political views and persuasions, ranging from the conservative right, <clears throat> for example, Václav Benda, to reform communists and the Trotskyist left, Petr Uhl. As a result, the exchanges of opinions were sometimes quite heated. The dissent community was a place of fundamental debates, a breeding ground of independent original thinkers. At the same time, the community was able to unite in solidarity and common action. Even if two dissidents held completely different views, they still respected each other. They showed solidarity with one another and fought their common enemy. So the dissent cultivated strong personalities rather than unity of mind. The dissent was not only pluralistic in its ideals, there, were, there was also a spontaneous division of labor. In my experience, there were two kinds of dissent, the dissent of protest and the dissent of reflection. They were almost two separate groups. The dissent of protest focused on the day-to-day -day operation of the establishment, particularly on how it treated all nonconformist citizens, not only those who were willing to put their signature under their criticism of the regime. This group of dissidents systematically monitored all breaches of all national laws and international conventions on human rights. They spread the word at home and abroad, lodged appeals, organized protests, and supported those who were persecuted. They convinced the system for its lies, hypocrisy, and smoke screening. This dissent was not anonymous. 
These dissidents stood by reports and analysis. They signed their writings and even published uh, their addresses. This was the front line, radical, risky dissent. They were taking more risks than the dissent of reflection. Those who signed protest against the regime's breach of its commitments had to count on being held for up to 96 hours, put in custody for several months, or serve jail sentence, sentences of up seven, eight years. They had to live with apartment searches while taping job discrimination, denied access to education for their children, confiscated driver's license and passports, disconnected telephones, as well as the occasional beatings. Unlike in the 50s, their lives were not longer in danger, but they still lived right like renegades. The dissent of protest took the third basket of the Helsinki process seriously, and in doing this, and in doing that, it has played a historic role. Without the everyday efforts of this part of dissent, Helsinki would have remained an empty proclamation that the Soviet bloc regimes were initially happy to trade for post-war border guarantees in Europe. These regimes did not expect that dissent would hold state to account for their Helsinki commitments. To this day, when people think of the dissent, they think only this first dissident group, of those dissidents who were in permanent daily conflict with the power and its forces of repression. They only think of those that documented what everyone had already known, that emperor, emperor has no clothes. There was also the dissident of reflection, writers, journalists, philosophers, political scientists, historians, sociologists, theologians, psychologists, and to a lesser degree also economists. They mostly signed their writing, but they're focused mainly on reflecting the society. They asked unpleasant questions, such as how is it possible that this kind of power took over in this country? How is it possible that it has ruled this society so long <clears throat> and in 70s and 80s so easily? This group was interested in the society rather than the establishment. In fact, they were not interested in the power that be. They were trying to understand how our society got to where it was. Authors from this decent community published through Samizdat hundreds of studies, monographs, and dozens of comprehensive Charter 77 documents. They run specialized papers. They held workshops in apartments and 
in the last years organized systematic university education in Brno. The civic dissent of protest had to work fast in teams and often undercover. The speed with which particular information was proceed and disseminated was often of the essence. The intellectual dissent of reflection worked, on the contrary, on thorough analysis. These people tended to work alone. They were not interested in being followed by the secret police because they did not cause the regime as much direct nuisance as the dissent of protest. They did not have to deal with unpleasant encounters with the forces of repression as often. Also, they did not necessarily see themselves as two separate parts back them. The two dissent groups respected each other. They did not define themselves in opposition to one another because they understood that they were both irreplaceable. Yet, one could feel some tension whether they like it or not, the first group was fascinated by the workings of power, while the other group was less and less interested in it. The first group tended to be more radical than the other who saw power as a function of the condition of the society and was therefore interested in historical developments, value systems, and social stratification of our society. The first group was proving over and over that the power was illegitimate, which of course provoked the establishment. The second group was asking unpleasant question of the community rather than the establishment. They asked how it was possible that the community has tolerated the illegitimate power and power <coughs> at all and for so long. They avoided direct confrontation with power. Václav Havel was unique in that he was a prominent figure in both these dissident groups. This role was not self-evident, but it certainly was exceptionally challenging, perhaps even political. He was a thoroughly independent intellectual a man of reflection who at the same time played a key role in organizing protests. In his writing, for example, in his letter to Gustav Husak or The Power of the Powerless, Václav Havel presented a pointed analysis of the workings of conformity. He wrote about the two-way relationship between the community and the totalitarian or later authoritarian powers. At the same time, he also personally protested against the illegitimate actions of the establishment. Václav Havel's later leading role in the Czechoslovak society can be traced back to his dual role in the dissent. For many years, he stood with one foot on each of the two ice flows, 
of the descent that occasionally tended to float away from each other. He held them together by his personal commitment, creativity, courage, trustworthiness, original thinking, and last but not least, by his sacrifices. He has paid an exceptionally high price. He spent many years in prison. His health was irreversibly damaged. Perhaps he also suffered from being isolated, a persiflage, a cruel hyperbole of this loneliness coupled with a high profile were expressed in his play Largo Desolato. And this is where I see the key to Havel's exceptional triple role. He was able to think and act on seemingly disparate levels. While taking care of the family of an imprisoned colleague, he was able to appeal to the world intellectual community through his essays. Havel's uniqueness probably lies in this understanding of the human element and responsibility for it. Coupled with willingness to explore the greater meaning or meaninglessness of human actions. Perhaps there is a simple description for it, magnanimity and humanity. Václav Havel lived in the dual role of a dissident and intellectual until November 1989. This was followed by the hectic times of the formation of the Civic Forum and his leading role in designing the strategy and tactics of the Civic Forum's Coordination Center for negotiations with the establishment. Nobody was challenging Havel's authority. It was self-evident, strangely perhaps even more so because his authority was not attached to any official position or institutionalized responsibility. Václav Havel was not elected to head anything. He simply did, and there was no dispute about it. A new tormenting, tormenting challenge presented itself with the question whether he should run for presidency. As I saw it unfold with my own eyes, I feel I am in a position to insist that Václav Havel was not playing modest. He hesitated for a long time before he exchanged his role of an independent thinker and free citizen for the highest position of our constitutional system. He was not the only one who could not or did not want, want to imagine himself in, his, in this position. Becoming president meant giving up a lot of freedom, surely not the freedom to think, but certainly the freedom to express all his thoughts out loud. Howell was the first one to acknowledge that any official position, let alone the office of the country's president, came with strings attached. 
An intellectual and a dissident, particularly if they inhabit a single body, treasure being independent of the outside environment above anything else. This was all the more true of him, because he has gained that independence through a long intellectual process and by publicly proclaimed resistance to power. In a way, both are solitary roles. Being a minority is normal both for an intellectual and for a dissident. That is why they have a hard time yielding to the will of the majority in a group. They had to fight for their independence and pay a high price. That is why they feel a strong need to defend their independence and stay away from the kind of responsibility that comes with standard politics. In a free, democratic and pluralistic society, politics cannot be an arena for the meetings of independent personalities. It is a battlefield of organized groups that compete for power, namely political parties. In a broader sense, this extends to organized interest groups and communities that is, civil to, that is to civil society. Particularly when it comes to political parties, the minority, let alone an individual, must sometimes yield to the majority, though at the same time minorities and individuals are protected against being terrorized by the majority in a democracy. In concrete decision, of course, the majority prevails. Let me end on a note that may seem like an overkill, but I still insist that as a politician, Havel could only be president. He could not have been a leader of political party. Given his power of self-reflection, he would not even try it. Although parliamentary democracy could, could not exist without party politics, it is simply not an intellectual's or dissident's cup of tea, even less so for dissident intellectuals. So was Václav Havel a politician after all? He was certainly a statement. statement. He was not a regu regular politician. He would not know how. More importantly, he would never accept the role of a party politician. If one wants to serve the community by playing a useful role of a lone, of a lone intellectual dissident critic, one must do so outside politics, perhaps, or perhaps above politics. Václav Havel never hit that he like some political parties and did not like others, but he always stayed above them. It was a blessing for Czechoslovakia and later for Czech Republic to have someone whose authority prevented us from plunging straight away into passionate political battles. It was a blessing to have someone who was convincing in his pleas for the civil society that limits and softens the expansionism of party politics. 
all that was possible thanks to courage, thanks to the courage that Václav Havel had to enter the political space that is usually considered forbidden land by intellectuals and dissidents. So perhaps I should change the title of my lecture to Václav Havel, Intellectual, Dissident and Statement. Thank you. <laughs>